0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on nights 2.7 and 106 FM.
1: The Money Show is brought to you by ABSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euromoney Cash Management Survey 2023. Welcome to The Money Show this a Monday evening. It's been a tough day of facing up to unpleasant realities each in many, many sectors today. Mining, jobs are going, Volkswagen threatening. It could cut jobs too and possibly even leave the country if South Africa doesn't sort out its triple disasters of failed rail ports and power. I uh-huh. And let's not even begin to think about the consequences of water, if and when that fails, too. Uh, we'll talk about NHI coming up in the second hour of the show. Business warning of a disaster looming there, too, as the National Council of Provinces looks to rubber stamp a flawed piece of legislation. And not all doom and gloom, though. Uh, Standard Bank standing its ground in the face of ludicrous accusations of trying to destroy the country. We'll talk about fabulous fish and how you make decisions without even realising it. Thanks to our guest this evening on How I Make Money. Lee Crimble is a marketer, but not just an ordinary marketer. She is an expert in neuro-linguistics, the stuff that makes you, that triggers you without you even knowing it. We'll try and understand it
0: later on The Money Show. The Money
2: Show. With Bruce Whitfield
0: on 702. 702.
1: They're coming through thick and fast now. The latest mining business to announce plans to cut jobs in the South African industry is the Chinese Jinshuang Group, the uh, group which uh, controls a large stake in West where Platinum. Uh, it's warned that its platinum project, the uh, project near in Northwest, is going to lose 75% of its workforce thanks to a restructuring in operations. It's partly due to a sharp decline in metal prices as we're hearing more and more, but also the operational disruptions brought about by load shedding and other factors. person breaking that story today, Anthony Squazin, who is the senior writer for Africa at Bloomberg News. And Anthony, welcome to The Money Show this evening there's huge pressure of course building in the south african economy an enormous amount of pain building in the south african economy and the company that now owns 45 percent of we, we platinum joining the likes of volkswagen and anglo-american platinum and anglo-american and Sibanye, and no doubt others in the fact that it may very well be shedding jobs
2: oh uh, yes uh Bruce, I think a lot of companies um, have, um, you know, already shed jobs. We've seen Sibania doing that. Um, and um, also Anglo-American, which is the story I wrote um, late last week, um, is also consulting government about shedding jobs of both Kumba and Anglo-American platinum.
1: It's a yeah. Again, the things happen slowly, slowly, and then suddenly all at once, and it feels like all all of the jobs, chickens, so to speak, are coming home to roost at the same time because of this multiplicity of state failure.
2: Yes, I think that's the case. I mean, companies can only take so much. So, you know, transport has had problems for quite some time. We saw last year that the um, the coal shipments were at a thirty-year low. Um, iron ore shipments, I think, were at a decade-long low. Um, things have got probably a little bit worse this year. So the companies are having a lot of problems. Um, I understand that, you know, Anglo-American in the form of Cumber is also running out of space to store the iron, or it cannot get onto the railway to the port. So therefore it will have to um, cut back on production, which means that they won't want to employ as many miners. Um, uh, yeah so that, and, uh, that's the consequence.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Not even a weaker RAND environment is enough to save us from ourselves, is it?
2: Look, I'm sure it helps, but um, in terms of platinum, the price has gone down quite a bit. The price of palladium, the important byproducts, have gone on even more. So, you know, a slightly weaker rant doesn't really help that much.
1: No, it doesn't. I mean, is there any sort of sense that government is paying attention to these woes, or are we in still what has been a very much a denial phase by government, which doesn't really want to own up to its role in what is playing out at the moment?
2: Look, government has uh, come out with a very detailed transport plan um, to fix freight rail. But it's a plan. South Africa has a lot of plans, and these things take a long time to put in place. And that should see more private sector involvement on the railways, at ports. But it's not a quick fix, and a lot of the companies aren't going to be able to wait that long. So it's likely that in the short term, at least, there probably will be quite a few job losses, um, which is... uh, it's a problem for a country that already has such a high unemployment rate. Of
1: course, we think about it at this time of year and the run-up to Christmas. It's the sort of news that nobody wants. But it also comes at a terrible time for the ANC, well, which is at some point next year you're going to have to call an election in terms of the Constitution. And it's damned if it calls it early and it's damned if it doesn't. I'm not too sure how this plays out in that particular narrative.
2: Well, it can't help them, I'm sure. Um... In terms of, uh, you know, job loss of platinum companies, I'm not sure that's got much to do with the government. The platinum markets have turned. That's a global thing. But in terms of coal companies, you know, Sirichi and Glencore have entered talks to cut jobs as well. That was disclosed at least a month ago. Um, and in terms of companies like Kumba, um, it's primarily due to the rail and ports. The rail and ports, and those are run by a state-run company. So ultimately, the buck stops with the government, and the government's run by the ANC.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Anthony Squazin, Senior Africa Writer at Bloomberg. Listening to all of that, the mining and labour analyst, Mamocheti Molopiane. Uh, Mamocheti, have you managed to figure out in any sort of sense how big this job's bloodbath could be?
3: Oh, it could. could Good afternoon, Bruce. It could run to quite an, a couple of thousands. I mean, when you look at all the uh, platinum belt and all the mining and the companies that are in there. And yes, as the previous guest said, I mean, uh, no matter what government and oh, there's been memories that the government senior officials senior officials in the party are trying to consult with companies to say to hold the job um cards and retrenchments and uh, and notices of intention to retrench, but it cannot be helped i mean uh we have seen palladium and platinum plunged um terribly um since mid uh twenty twenty two so it's really not surprising because Companies that, mining companies that are not restructuring, they are running a risk of, um, of, of, of being exposed to costs and they cannot sustain them.
1: And this is disastrous, not only, of course, for the individuals that are losing jobs, but for the mining communities that have grown around the mines, particularly you look in Northwest and you take that road to Sun City and you go past Marikana, the famous Marikana and all of those places. You just look at these huge, vast communities of people, all of whom are dependent on the viability of the mining sector. And we've done very little to change the fortunes of the mining sector, kind of depending permanently on high prices without too much thought for what happens.
3: When things pull back, yes, it's going to to have quite a ripple effect on the communities that are around, I mean, in the northwest particularly. Um, you, there was already as we have seen the report that came out not so long ago from the high unemployment rate. Uh, the country's ability to create jobs is not moving as they anticipate. Government programs on employment and jobs is not moving. And even government infrastructure program uh, seems to have lag behind. Uh, So so it's going to have such significant impact on um, the socio economic being of people around uh, those mining, how those, those mines, those mines and mining activities, but also filters down to, um, as we know, we've seen also a very detailed report about poverty, doesn't beginning to be entrenched in South Africa. It, it entrenches that uh, continuation of uh, unemployed, uh, not looking for work, not economically active, but also. a, a a complete stop in some of the economic activities around the areas where mining is taking place, often depressing the economy and the the well-being of the people around that area.
1: Mamucheti, thank you so much for your input this evening. Mamucheti Molopuyane, the mining and labour analyst. Before her, Anthony Kwasin, who wrote the big Anglo-American story of government trying to dissuade um anglo-american from cutting jobs ahead of an election and uh, it's the the, unfortunately the longer you leave things unattended the longer you allow the state-owned enterprises to be gouged out in the way that the anc allowed these state-owned enterprises to be gouged out when things fall apart they fall apart spectacularly and they fall apart all at once and the knock-on effects are going to be felt by all of us for the next decade at least Um, That's assuming we start getting ourselves sorted out and uh, beginning to resolve these problems sooner rather than later. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Unrivaled pursuit of great service that guides good business for clients. APSA's a registered FSP. I feel like having a chant coming on. We want more energy. South Africa has spoken and Red Rocket listened. Independent power producer Red Rocket is a bold new mission, or honorable new mission, to bring your renewable energy to you. Up to 2,000 megawatts of wind and solar power is on the horizon and will be ready to sell directly to businesses from 2026. Get in touch with Red Rocket for a chance to get affordable renewable electricity to suit your business needs. To find out more on how to get your share, email give me power at redrocket.com. Dot energy. T's
0: and Z supply. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702.
1: 702. Did you see the report in City Press at the weekend on Escom proceeding with a new logo and brand identity, which uh, will have to be replicated across all of its digital and physical assets, of course, because you can't just do the identity. You've then got to put it in place at all of your offices and all of your places and all of your pylons, I suppose. Despite massive criticism over putting out the process to tender, it's going ahead. Head, and it's nuts. I've got no idea how much it'll cost in total, whether it's 10 million or 50 million or 100 million rand, which relative to the depth and the scale of its problems is not much money. Really, it isn't. Uh, but it's hard to see how it could be morally justified to do so. I mean, it's often you know, a new logo invigorates a business and a new logo energizes a business and customers feel that they uh, are dealing with something fresh and new and they're not really. Uh, but this one, this one is not one that's going to work. It's not going to f- make people steal less. It's not going to fix the network faster. It's a nonsensical decision. Imagine pushing ahead with a brand refresh in the midst of a power crisis. How silly. Bruce
2: is on The Money Show.
1: In stereo. Not everyone's miserable, though. Oceana, which, amongst other things, produces lucky star pilchards, it's its claim to fame, has seen profits surge, up nearly 29% to just under 1 billion rand. And Lucky Star, of course, has got a pricing strategy which they've managed to implement that's given them sales growth, that's given uh, South Africans perhaps some food security, which has been under pressure as bird flu has gouged into the chicken population and caused a chicken and an egg shortage. I'm not sure which one came first. And of course, the pricing of South Africa's most powerful animal protein has, uh, has come under a huge amount of pressure. Neville Brink is the Chief Executive at Oceana and I wonder if part of your success Neville is due to the fact that there's been this avian flu crisis that there's been this shortage of chickens and eggs and that this has played into your hands as a fishing business
4: Hi Bruce Uh, yes you're quite correct Uh, and obviously we play in that game Um, you know we we see our main competitors not being other poachers but the chicken, the eggs, the polonies of this world, which is affordable protein. And that certainly has played in our They are under pressure, they put prices up, and, and we've tried to hold our prices. Um, the other issue is obviously load shedding. You know, um, chicken is perishable. Um, consumers, and particularly the, the township stores, are reluctant to carry too much perishable goods because the potential of, of um, spoilage. And that certainly has played now in into our favour. So we are... We are aggressive on pricing. It has cost, come at a, at a cost of margin, but it's an acceptable dropping margin. We, it's not sizable, and, and we're going to continue to drive that volume strategy. Uh,
1: and so how much longer can you keep prices at sort of more competitive levels? Because the, the, the risk of holding prices, of course, is ultimately it costs you to far too much money in order to do so. And ultimately, it affects poss- possibly production, it affects quality, and uh, it, it could very well have a negative impact longer term. It could. Um, And obviously, we've
4: got to watch what the other protein uh, producers are doing. And we'll see. You know, I know the chicken guys are under huge pressure, so we'll have to look at our relative pricing. Um, We also have invested quite heavily in stock. Um, Obviously, we import frozen product to process through our canneries, and we've been quite aggressive in that. And we're sitting with quite healthy stocks now, over four to five months stock that's currently in our system. So... We're not we're under under pressure now to look at price increases. We'll have a we'll take a view uh, in the early part of the new year and see where where our competitors are, and then they decide. But consumers are really under pressure. Interesting, some stats: seventy percent of of food items are being bought on promotion. So consumers are not walking into a, a supermarket with a trolley and just filling it up, they look at broadsheets and they are shopping very, very selectively at those groups that are giving them specials. And and that's the game we're playing in. So we, we, we're cautiously optimistic about the growth of Lucky Star. It's a great brand.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, increasingly popular, particularly for all of the reasons that you you spelled out. Your U.S. business and the decision to diversify out of South Africa is doing particularly well. You get a positive currency translation from the strong performance, performing businesses there, particularly in fish meal and oils. Now, fish meal uh, traditionally goes into animal feeds. It's a good protein source in animal feeds. The oils, we're we talking about sort of the, the oils that pharmacies sell, cod liver oils, and that's Sort of thing.
4: No, no. The oil. Our oil is very high in omega threes, and it's particularly needed in aquaculture. Um, our main buyer for for our fish oil out of the U.S. is the salmon farms in the Scandinavian countries. Um, and this, and in particular, salmon has become very, very popular worldwide. As you know, sushi has become a, a household name, and the farms have had huge growth. And <laughs> It's taken time, but that, that business has really grown. And what's happened in the, in the short term is the, our competitors is the Peruvian anchovy catch. And they've had a shocking season because of climate change and, and, and the effect of El Nino. And there's a, currently a worldwide short shortage of high omega-3 oils, which is the game where we play. So we've seen pricing go through the roof um, so it's taken a while, and, and, the one, and the reason we went into that business was because of the growth of aquaculture worldwide. We, we anticipated six or seven years ago that aquaculture would continue to feed the world, and, and we've seen that develop over years. And I think it was in 2022 where aquaculture production now exceeds all of wild-caught production for the first time. And that's going to continue to grow, and what they need is an ingredient in their feed, which is where we play. So
1: it's we're, love, we're in it's, a very good yeah. position. Now, it's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, just as the world evolves and develops and as uh, the demand for fish products grows, agriculture or aquaculture um, is yeah. a very, very fast expanding segment of the market. When it comes to that U.S. business, though, that significant dollar growth, I suppose, making up for quite a lot of pressure in the South African market.
4: Yes. I mean, obviously, it, it accounts for almost 57% of our, of our number this year. And uh, and that's a very, you know, and one of the strengths of Oceania is the diversity. You know, we're not in one species. We're not in one currency. We're not in one geography. Um, and, and, that, and, and all the businesses can't fire all at the same time. And that's been the beauty of our business. We're not a single species com- uh, uh, a company. Um, and they've done well. You know, last, two, three years ago, they were battling. And the other businesses carried them. So it is part of the group's, strategy is to be diversified across all of these species and geographies and currencies so it's certainly worked for us.
1: Is that, what pre- is that protect? what protects you against the climate change factors that are affecting the anchovy farmers from Brazil uh, fishermen from Brazil is that you've got this diversity so whether it's El- La Nina or El Nino actually makes very little difference.
4: Very much so so what we saw in South Africa we had we had an effect on our east coast, the La Nina, as you call it. And it did affect our hay catching and our, and our squid catching. But the opposite effect had happened in the Gulf of Mexico where, where the resource was very strong. So it is a bit of a protection because we're not in one particular part of the ocean,
1: and the South African business, I mean, other than the obvious stuff of, you know, your your ships are absolutely fine on the high seas, they burn diesel, they've got generators, they are able uh, to keep the fish processed and frozen. But the moment it gets to land, of course, then you're subjected to the vagaries of South Africa's infrastructure failures.
4: We are. We are less affected by those shedding than many other manufacturing companies because we operate uh, coal-fired boilers. Um, we are investing in some solar, like everybody else is, um, but uh, you know vessels aren't aren't on subject to ESCOM's woes, so it does protect us to a point. But like everybody, we've been affected by load shedding. Um, the, 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 the positive thing, as I said, is is our consumers are looking for non-perishable products, which has helped us in a perverse way that we've sold a little bit more lucky star than I think we would have.
1: And also going more aggressively into canned meats. I mean, we're familiar with bully beef and others in the South African market. That is, again, it would seem a defensive strategy into a, a market that wants food that's easy to preserve. The reason canning was invented was to get food off to war where, 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 where the environment yeah. is fairly hostile and South Africa is feeling fairly hostile at the moment.
4: Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's also it's around the strength of Lucky Star as a brand. You know, it, it was voted the number one township brand in the country last year. And that, that brand is iconic. So what we're looking for is, is alternatives to canned fish that we can put under the Lucky Star brand that resonates with our customers. And corn meat is being one of them. You know, a, a, a non-perishable product that is priced reasonably that, that, that is, that is uh, enjoyed by, by our standard Lucky Star customer.
1: Thank you to Neville Brink this evening, Chief Executive at Oceana. Fascinating insights into the world of fish.
5: The
1: markets. Peter Brook, uh, portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group, a mixed bag of trading updates and results and performances today. Peter Brook, um, Standard Bank's trading update this morning was actually a—you know—it was things are slowing down a bit for them, but still very, very
0: positive. That's right. Standard Bank has been a stunning performer uh, amongst the banks, and you can see the strength of its African operation coming through quite strongly. But in terms of it's not really new news, and you can see that in a way, price action pretty much in line with the other banks, down nearly a percent. Um, so, not that exciting. What I, what I did find super interesting was we had all these small caps. I, I know you're just speaking to Oceana, but we had Invicta, Zeda, or Zeda, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, Stockholm.
1: Well, there's Zeda and Zeda. Zeda's Zeder. a car hire company and Zeda is an agricultural firm, which one are we' talking about?
0: We're talking about the car hire <laughs> okay
1: that's Zeda not Ze.'s it's, it's, it's very infuriating but they, that's that's a, that's branding for you um, So the car hire company is doing very well they've they've recovered smartly, but these smaller companies are flying. they're not getting that, are they getting recognized by the market though for the work that they're doing and the fact that they are performing well in a tough environment?
0: That's exactly the point, Bruce. So let's take um, data. Its turnover was up 12%. Its operating profit was up 23%. um, And the share price jumped today. So a nice gain of 4.3%. But the truth is, it's it's trading on 4.4 times earnings. And if I go through and we look at Invicta, so it's a classic small cap. It's gone nowhere for three years. But actually, it's the same share price it was in 2010. Um, it's trading on a P.E. of 5.6 times. These are historic P.E.s because obviously nobody's forecasting what's going to happen next year because nobody covers them. The business has got a little bit better. It's taken its debt down. It's buying back some shares. Um, and we see we see this pattern all over the place. Sokol, seven and a half times. It's taken 300 million of debt off the books. Um, Oceana, you know, it's trading in line with where it was in 2012 and if you think about the fact that it was a it's a it's, it's a lot of dollar based in it and if you look at a dollar price you're going back to 2010 uh we're just
1: having a little bit of a glitch there Peter Brook I'm hoping you're still with us but yeah with that Oceana uh, business of course 57 percent of it is dollar-based earnings at the moment um, so it's a, it's a considerable Randage
0: yeah and I think that's in a way the The interesting thing is South Africans with a higher interest rates aren't keen to buy shares in South Africa, um, and they're diversifying offshore, and particularly with the change in Regulation 28. But actually, a lot of these companies have got material offshore assets, so you're buying them cheap as chips. So there's a really great opportunity in small-cap shares in South Africa that are unloved, ignored, and are broadly if they can survive the tough environment which we're in, are starting to offer some opportunities.
1: It's good to see. And commodity shares, I mean, just the the horror show of looming job cuts um, is is suddenly coming to the fore in a way that we've been anticipating for a while. Uh, But the reality is that it's here now when it's happening and we can feel it.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you followed that report um, from Ricardo Hausmann. Um, yes, absolutely. Um,
1: and, and just de- devastating choices, of uh, devastating policy choices, yeah.
0: Exactly. So you look at um, mining stopped growing ages ago. Now manufacturing is under pressure. The cost of doing business has a direct impact. Um, and I, I don't think we can get away with that. Although at least today, both our platinum and our gold shares picked up a little bit.
1: All due to the currency, I would think, but they and some some commodity price moves as well. Peter Brook, Portfolio Manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Bruce Whitfield
2: on the Money Show.
1: 6 to 8 p.m. It's not about Bruce, apparently.
2: Who who thought about
1: I thought all about me. Anyway, no, we don't. Uh 20 minutes to 7 o'clock on this uh, wonderful Monday evening at toughdale Markets. Uh, Trading update from Standard Bank in line with expectations, but we're not going to talk to Lungisa Fuzile about that. Lungisa is the chief executive at Standard Bank South Africa. I thought it was a fairly bizarre statement that the bank felt obliged to launch On Friday evening, came through at about half past seven, quarter to eight on Friday evening, a strong update. And uh, Sim Chabalala, the chief executive, group chief executive, denying suggestions that big business is trying to destroy the economy. It's the biggest non-story of the past week, and it's not going to go away in a hurry. After the minister and the presidency claimed that based on a very limited understanding of the currency manipulation saga, that business is somehow out to destroy the economy and destroy the country and by implication destroy the ANC. Lungisa Fuzile, chief executive of Standard Bank in South Africa, is with us this evening. I think many people are finding it really quite frustrating that business is being so polite in its response to a ludicrous narrative that's being allowed to take hold in the economy here, Lungisa. Why are you being so polite in the face of quite unmitigated um, aggression by the minister?
6: Now, thanks, Bruce, for for having us. The, The most important thing at a time like now, Bruce, is to just try and make sure that we work with everyone to make sure that we clear the air and get people to understand what has happened uh, versus what has not happened. It's, it's like facts uh, from fiction, um, correct whatever discussions or uh, misunderstandings and misinformation that there is. Now, if you choose to be too angry and a choice of words... Overshadows the main message that you want to put across. That becomes totally counterproductive, and at Standard Bank, we not want to be party to a mud uh, slinging match. Um, when in fact, at issue here is the fact that and the private sector more broadly have unfortunately been accused of doing positive effort. Uh, all of us uh, uh, stand for. And we prefer to communicate... Uh, Lungisa, sorry,
1: I'm just going to put you on hold for a moment because the cell phone signal is absolutely atrocious and uh, we just want to get a better cell phone signal because it's breaking up this evening and I just want Lungisa to be able to get his point across. Uh, On your next Money Show, we've got uh, Gary Boyson, the director at Rand Swiss, who will be the head teacher of the investment school, explaining how you go about Choosing an investment company—it's all in the uh, light of the BHI trust scandal. The, this terrible incident where about two thousand investors' money has been completely eviscerated. Dinah Games, chief executive at Africa at Work, will give us a, a view as to what's happening on the con- on the continent. Plus, of course, all of the big money and business stories of the day, including the big signals that we are seeing in the global economy. Sorry, Lungisa Fuzile, you are back with us, the Standard Bank South Africa chief executive. It took a couple. Days to respond. You responded on Friday evening. You're saying that in a world where everybody else is losing their heads, you're determined to keep your head about you. Um, but it just seems like there is a desperate attempt by politicians to distract from their own failings and in doing so, throw out some fairly wild allegations of complicity in in the destruction of the state. I thought Busimavuso put it well, saying government's doing it perfectly well, thank you, without our help, there's no need for us to get involved, even if we wanted to, I think was the subtext. Um, they're really not doing a particularly good job, and you're a former civil servant, you're a former DG from within the National Treasury. You understand exactly what both sides of this equation look like?
6: I do, Bruce. Um, sorry again that uh, Signal uh, was letting much us better. down. Let's much better. Let's hope that it holds up. Let let me say two things uh, quickly. The first one is that, by the way, statement we were engaged with the issue immediately it broke. We tried to use tunnels that would ensure that the matter was contained before it uh, it uh, ran wild uh, It didn't win or succeed. Secondly, secondly, and and this is not because I worked in the treasury. I come from go, Bruce, and read the Treasury Statement, what you see is that that statement makes it very clear uh, that one, uh, the, 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 the currency market, markets in which the rent is traded, have huge volumes traded every... Those volumes are of such a nature that a few transactions that are manipulated by a handful of traders, if that were to be the case, can shift the current worldwide, but the volumes are of such a nature that it would shift back to what is determined by the market. Now, that great statement that was issued by the Treasury comes from that. So we cannot lose sight and overgeneralize the point. It is, of course, unfortunate that uh, confusion has been created as the fact that businesses need a thriving economy in order for them to deliver on their strategic objectives and contribute to the advancement of South Africa, in our case of the entire continent, can be viewed Will be doing the opposite. Businesses that are tasked with partnering government to solve the energy problem affecting us today, probably affecting this connectivity. Sorting out what is happening with logistics in Durban. Sorting out crime and corruption. All of these things which are holding South Africa back. We're working with government. As I speak to you, Bruce, we will be meeting as business leaders with the president, Uh, and uh, cabinet and senior officials from government to talk about the progress we're making and chart a way forward on what more can we do to accelerate uh, the impacts of those efforts. So this distraction uh, doesn't serve anyone, which is why we elect uh, Standard Bank to rather engage with the issue and clarify that as an institution we have had no role in the manipulation of the currency we have not been played with any shred of evidence to that effect. But even for those who have uh, admitted guilt or paid it fine, it's only currency manipulation driven by greed among a handful of traders yeah. rather than a desire to bring down a government.
1: We'll leave it there, Lungisa Fuzilia. Terribly sorry, but we just can't be subjected to the load-shedding-induced fallout on the cell phone networks. That's what we're told is causing this fallout on a daily basis. And, and yes, yeah, for government, I mean, it's there's a growing body of evidence for everybody from mining companies to the likes of Volkswagen. They're cutting jobs and they're considering their futures in the country, which increasingly struggles to do the basics. And you cannot obfuscate and sort of point fingers, I'm afraid, when it is you who is at the center of the failure. Uh, So Standard Bank feeling obliged to issue that statement, which they did on Friday. I thought it was uh, uh, the right thing to do. I would have loved for them to have done it sooner. But as Lungisa was explaining, it's about the back channels. It's about trying to say to government, guys, 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 just hold on a second. Rethink, recalibrate, re, and then when that doesn't work. Then you have to issue a statement. So there's no, there's no sort of apology, and still no apology. And there's no like, oh, we were wrong, terribly sorry about that. Let's all move on and be friends again. And I, I find that quite difficult. If I was a government, a business negotiator with government, to go in and play nice when you know the people who are supposed to be your partners in an uh, a project are making it more difficult for you to be part of that relationship, then are they they really partners? Are they really partners? You're with Bruce Whitfield on
0: 702.
1: 702. The Money Show is brought to you by ABSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 2023. I spoke at an event at Gallagher Estate last week, and the aircon just really wasn't coping with stage six load shedding. But there was a wonderful, massive fan, the size of a double-door fridge, which at least kept the air in this big space circulating. It wasn't a particularly a sensible solution for you at home on hot summer nights because there wouldn't be enough room for you and the fan in the same place at the same time. It's a monstrous thing. And also, I don't know if you've got a generator big enough to power it. But a regular household fan is also not going to help unless you can find a way to power it. Now, Toby Shepshak has been looking hard and deeply at this particular problem. Toby is the chief at Stuff Studios. Are there any decent fans that can run off a small battery or a small power bank or anything like that, Toby?
7: Yes, there are, Bruce. And increasingly, there are more of them. Uh, But the, the brand that I'm most fond of, I know it sounds like a strange thing to say about fans, but you'd be surprised at how many fan... Options I like there Myrtle. Are. Myrtle. Myrtle
1: um, is my favorite, well, my only fan. But anyway, yes, I understand. yes okay, you're I, talking about electric I Don't fans. think any
7: less of me. I've I've <laughs> never heard of Myrtle, um, but I have heard of Mako, and they're a great fan. I came across them maybe three years or so ago, maybe more, um, mm-hmm. around about the same time of year, and they make these very
8: cool,
7: very quiet fans. They say they have less than. 20 decibels, which is comparable to a Whisper. I know that they are good. They've been in, you know, one of these fans has been in my son's room for at least the last three or four years. Uh, let's say three years. And, it, and it's fantastic. It's very quiet. It moves the air around. It goes up to a speed of 12. You can keep it sta- stationary or you can make a move around. And and it's called the Miko Fan uh, 105.6. But <clears throat> this model uh, unlike the new model, which is the Miko Fan 650, um, the 650 has, it's very clever, Bruce, it has a USB-C adapter so that you can run it off a power bank as opposed to directly off the mains. Nice. And what that means is a 20,000 milliamp power bank, they say, will keep it running for four to six hours. What? I haven't had it long enough at, Okay. Four to six hours running off a power bank. And it's a pretty, it's a very reasonable price, two and a half thousand Rand. It's a very, very good fan. It's a, I, I can vouch for it because I have one in my son's bedroom and one in my lounge. And they, they work fantastically. They're very quiet. They don't make a noise. They, they, they call them air circulators, which is more that it moves the air around. But it's, no, absolutely. In such there's nothing, it's just quiet yeah. enough there's you know, nothing worse the on a, that you can on a humid C.
1: <laughs> there's nothing worse on a on a humid Joburg evening there's just been rain with rain is coming and there's no breeze and oh. the heat is just sitting all you want is to draw air through the room and replace the stale air and just Not get it exactly. moving. and these things exactly. will, will do will do the job but the there's a cordless the gra- there's a cordless one as well
7: there is indeed. I spoke about this last year, and, I, and I'm, or, uh, yeah, last year, and I'm just as thrilled about it now. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, going to try and reclaim mine back from my wife for, uh, for camping trips. You know, those mythical <laughs> camping trips I'm going to go on. So many of, um, but what's really great about it called the Miko Fan 260C, and it it's got it says up to 16 hours of battery. It's got a 500. A uh, f- f- five thousand milliamp battery. You can charge it with a USB C port, um, and it works so brilliantly. Bruce, I, I came across this in uh, visiting a-, a friend in London, and it was the UK summer, and he had it sitting on his desk, and I was enthralled by it because it does exactly what it's supposed to. But it's really quiet. It has four speeds. Even the fastest speed is is relatively quiet, but it's 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 cordless and it's it's it has its own battery. I mean, I, I've never tested how long sixteen hours are because it got cut from me soon after it arrived. But <laughs> you know, it's a it's a it's exactly what you need. And I have to say, Bruce, I mean, I put a very large ceiling fan into into my study when during COVID when I I got kicked out of the, the one of the sp- the spare room actually into into the what was the sitting room and it has a very large ceiling. So we put up a fan there, which has a remote control. And it, it it is just, it's the very first principles of, of how we understand the world. You know, if you want to keep a house cool, have a cross draft rooms, you know, windows on either side of the house or doors that you can get a, a, a breeze going and a fan. And that's, you know, the simplest way. I mean, I think it's probably unconscionable to use air conditioning, uh, in this day and age, especially if you're in a house. Um, I suppose it's kind of different in an office, I suppose. But you know, when they're really good and I think cost effective solutions with ye old fanny or fan, it's yes, fantastic. It is.
1: Thank you, Toby Shabshak. Uh, Toby is the chief at Stuff Studios, and I can vouch for that. I mean, we've got two studios here. Uh, one studio I was doing market reports out of earlier, um, and the current studio I'm sitting in. It is beautifully cool. I have to admit that there is some aircon, um, but at a fairly moderate level. Um, but the other studio, the aircon, wasn't functioning, and there was a fan in it. And it was just moving stale air around very effectively, but just And just, you know, because these studios are built to be soundproof and they're built to be particularly resilient to the outside uh, elements. And if you've got these studios and they are so well sealed and not quite hermetically sealed, but certainly very well sealed, it becomes, yeah, that thing where you very quickly are panting and can't concentrate because it gets far too hot. So, yes, a fan is a wonderful thing, provided there's an outside source of air that you can bring in to refresh the environment in which you're in. Uh, an aircon, of course, is first price. But, yes, being responsible, of course, you've got to try and minimize the use of these power-sucking devices at a time where there's not that much power to suck.
2: 702.
1: Bruce is
2: on The Money Show.
1: I see the UAE is getting fingered by the BBC. That's not too much of a, too many acronyms. The United Arab Emirates. BBC is saying that they plan to use their role as the host of the UN climate talks as an opportunity to get oil and gas deals. There have been briefing documents which have been leaked, which reveal plans to discuss fossil fuel deals with 15 countries. Now, the UN body responsible for the COP28 summit has told the BBC that um, the country that hosts the event should really be acting without bias or self-interest. Now, the UAE team hasn't denied using the COP28 meetings for talking business. It says, well, you know, private business is private business. It happens in private. This isn't on the main agenda. It's not on the thing. Uh, People happen to be here. So, hey, we're talking to them. Why would we not? Uh, It's not going to... Uh, Comment on what has been discussed in meetings, but there certainly is documentary evidence to suggest that some of the people going to COP28 are doing it with less of a climate change agenda than perhaps you would like if you were a taxpayer in a country paying to send your... Uh, representatives to this environment. The documents uh, suggest that uh, a Colombian minister uh, is ready to support Colombia to uh, develop fossil fuel resources. And in a world which is so difficult in which to get sustainable energy sources going fast enough, many countries, of course, are committed long term to the use of fossil fuels, despite the rouse and ructions that it brings. And that's the nature of what we call the just transition. But the problem is with this just transition is that it's not always honorably managed. And when you do get underhand activities happening, when you get uh, countries that are sort of double dating, if you like, um, then it becomes massively massively problematic of course when it comes to the trust in institutions like cop 28 I'd love to go to cop 28 one of these days I think it'll be fascinating I think it'll be really interesting to see who turns up and whether there are more private jets at Uh, COP28, then there are at Davos, for example. Somebody needs to do the calculation. I volunteer. Uh, That. uh, We will talk about uh, business and South Africa. And NHI, National Health Insurance, looks like it's going to get pushed through the parliamentary and the National Council of Province process without so much as a, a tweak or a twist. And that is a big problem because it's going to bankrupt the country if it's done in its current form, allegedly. We'll do that with Martin Kingston at Business for South Africa in a few minutes after Eyewitness News.
3: The
0: Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM.
1: The Money Show brought to you by Absa CIB voted overall best service business function in africa by the euro money cash management survey 2023 strawn uh, strachan uh simon strachan i beg your pardon or Simon? no see simon strachan simon strawn now, my producers have confused me horribly. I beg your pardon, Simon. We'll get to you in a, in a, in a moment. Uh, he is spokesperson for the South African Health Professions uh, Council. We'll also uh, talk to Martin Kingston, the chairman for Business South Africa, uh, this evening. Uh, welcome to The Money Show, to both of them, as we get them up and ready. We'll also do our business book review this evening, and it's a wonderful book by uh, Wandile Sechobo. Uh, which is about South Africa's two agricultures. Matsi Modise is going to review that book for us this evening. And then at half past seven, Lee Crimble, founder of Breadcrumbs, is with us. We'll do that this evening here on The Money Show. Bruce
2: Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m.
1: The clock ticking on NHI, National Health Insurance, is a very real risk that an economically destructive version of the bill is going to be passed into law. Business calling for the National Council of Provinces Health Committee to reconsider the bill. And to make amendments, we'll chat to Michael Martin Kingston in just a moment. But uh, Simon Strawn is the spokesperson for South African health professionals. Simon, welcome to the Money Show this evening. What, from your perspective, how bad a scenario is it if the NHI bill is passed in its current form? Uh,
8: good evening, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so the South African health professionals' collaboration. Um, We're representing about 25,000 health professionals in the country Uh, and we've got together because we feel like we've just not been heard. Even though we have individually participated in every opportunity given to us, we're hoping now that with this large collaboration, we can be heard. So how bad will it be? Well, we are very worried that it will result in much poorer quality of care much worse access for healthcare people get less than they can uh, and we are really concerned that it could end up being the destruction of the healthcare system.
1: Now, this is, this is nobody's intention. I mean, everybody wants a better healthcare system. I don't think there's anybody in their right mind who for a moment wants a worse healthcare system than exists in South Africa, yet the politicians who are pushing this legislation through are absolutely adamant that what they are doing is in the best interests of the country. How can there possibly be such a chasm of expectation between the two parties here?
8: Well, I don't think we've been listened to. I don't think that they've come to heard heard what the healthcare professionals have to say about it. I think it points to the fact that the bill in its uh, initiation and its, and its, its part is more of a a funding model has got much less to do with the delivery of health care. Uh, and therein lies. The problem can't set up a bill where one of its premises, one of its rising things, is the procurement of services has to be at the cheapest cost. If that's the premise from which you start, I mean, clearly you're going to have a problem then dealing with at least supplying quality of care. And I really do believe that the, the rhetoric that is being uh, propagated at the moment, that people are going to be able to go to the nearest private hospital and get health care uh, for no cost at point of service, at the most point in time, this is not going to work in this current situation, in its current form. The reason it's got this far, we believe, is because we haven't been hurt, despite our best efforts.
1: So now you're trying to be heard again. The odds of you being heard this time are about as good as your odds of being heard last time. What real power have you got here, Simon, in terms of really standing up for your rights other than packing your bags and finding a new jurisdiction to go and live and work in, which, again, nobody wants? Um, what do you see as your options? Yeah, well, I think
8: that's the point. It's, I mean, the, this huge group of health professionals we've got together are not saying we're packing our bags and leaving. We're actually saying that we need to find a solution here. And we're hoping with the fact that we can represent such a large group and a group that encompasses both the public and private sector, this is not just a private sector initiative, that we will actually, people look and go, well, if the people who are actually going to have to be delivering the healthcare are raising their hands saying there's a problem, we're hoping the patients who are going to be accessing the care will start to hear the same message and that people will start to ask serious questions. Is this bill actually about delivering health care? Is this bill actually able to work? We believe it's not able to work. So why has it been driven through then without this level of engagement? So Bruce, your point is taken, but
3: and,
8: and, and maybe we should have been speaking up a little bit sooner, but we're here right now. And this is a very large representative group. And and we are looking for the solutions. The solutions don't lie in the NHI bill. The solutions to health reform in this country Look with bolstering the infrastructure and building up the public sector in terms of health resources. It's about implementing health market inquiry recommendations in the private sector and allowing both sectors, which are indispensable. The private sector is indispensable in the, the opportunity to provide, provide universal access to quality health care in this country
1: simon thank you simon Strawn is a spokesperson for south african health professionals listen to that the chairman for at business for south africa martin kingston what are the time frames we talking about here martin i was told last week that the national council of provinces is due to vote this week on the matter and seems hell-bent on pushing through the national health insurance bill without so much as a, a re-reading of the document is my understanding correct
9: you're absolutely right, Bruce, I'm afraid. Certainly, uh, the uh, uh, select committee that met last week uh, didn't pay any attention to the recommendations that had been made during the NCOP uh, process. Indeed, they didn't even consider uh, the mandate of the individual provinces, uh, which had been prepared. Four provinces uh, had extensive uh, uh, commentary uh, that was ignored. Uh, so it's going forward on the basis of a simple yes or no, Uh, and uh, we don't believe that the NCOP either should or can be a rubber stamp uh, to a public uh, consultation uh, process that's obviously the foundation of a participatory democracy and we've written uh, to the chair of the NCOP and to the deputy presidents as the leader of government business making it clear uh, that we think that they need to apply their minds carefully and cautiously you know we're going to act in haste and leather as a leisure. As you were discussing uh, with Simon, we all accept uh, the need for universal health care, but it needs to be suitably structured, suitably funded, uh, and properly institutionalized. We need to you about know, any of the unintended confer- con- consequences. I mean, we heard about some of those from Simon uh, just now. We just cannot rush this through without uh, considering all of the
1: implications. Why is there so little regard for professional input in this process? Well, by the way, it's not
9: just professional input, Bruce. They've ignored the input from the National Department of Health itself, which has expressed uh, some reservations about the way in which the legislation was drafted. I think it's because we all acknowledge it's a fundamental pillar of the election campaign, um, and therefore they want to be able to demonstrate to the population to uh, the electorate uh, that they are delivering NHI, but it needs to be NHI that is implementable. At the moment, it's fundamentally unimplementable.
1: There's, I mean, things that, uh, where this goes to next, I guess, Martin, let's assume the National Council of Provinces remains belligerent and passes the legislation that this could be tied up in the courts for, for decades. If necessary, yep. but it would just cause massive uh, discontent and massive societal dislocation, I would argue.
9: Well, I think that's exactly right. In fact, it has another step. It has to go to the president to be signed into law. The president will have to apply it. as to the constitutionality. If it goes forward as is currently uh, being proposed, then no doubt not only ourselves but a number of other stakeholders. Uh, from uh, civil society, from uh, the private sector, and indeed more broadly uh, will engage uh, with that process and then, as you say, there will be litigation and I think that that serves uh, nobody any useful purpose And more importantly, exactly as you've indicated, what the circumstances is to very significant uncertainty and anxiety. Uh, we know that the private healthcare sector, sector, which Simon represents a very significant body uh, of people, is a critical complementary part of the health sector the country as a whole. We can't afford to alienate the that as you know as you and I have discussed previously, what B4SA is seeking to do in a whole host of areas, is to ensure that we can leverage the resources, skills, and expertise of the private sector, large and small, formal and informal. Uh, we, I think, as a country at our peril for something as significant as this. And the risk that we run uh, is that, actually, that anxiety will stop people from making the movements they need to make, investments that are absolutely essential at a time when it's... Uh, Critical that we should see an increase in confidence levels, uh, not actually a fundamental erosion and reduction in those confidence levels.
1: Does sanity prevail before the end of this week?
9: We will have a conversation with the government as I speak. I hope that it will. If it doesn't, uh, then of course we will have no choice but to raise it at the next stage. Um, but we don't need the country what we need to achieve, which is the provision of universal health care, particularly to those who don't have access, as quickly, as reliably and as soon
2: as possible.
1: Thank you to Martin Kingston, who is the chairman at uh, Business for Africa. Apologies for the crackly lines. And Simon Strawn, who speaks on behalf of health professionals. And I think we've got enough out of it. And I hope you didn't find it too frustrating. I certainly find it incredibly frustrating. Uh, that the lines break up in the way that they do. We're told it is because of load shedding, and it is one of those dreadful realities with which we have to contend at the moment. We are working on alternatives, I am assured, to try and get the clarity of the signal that you receive in your ears. You give us your ears so that we can share what we regard to be the most important stories of the day with you. But um, it's really quite difficult under. The circumstances, not as difficult as the battle being faced by health professions, 25,000 of them, who must be looking at this legislation and must be looking at the many, 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 many hours of input that they gave and that business gave into this process that has just been ignored. Just been said, well, yeah, there was public consultation. (laughs) I've told the story on the radio before, but uh, my first experience of political belligerence at Rhodes University circa 1989, somebody invited someone from the IFP to speak at probably the zoology building or some I can't remember. It was one of the big lecture halls. And the speaker arrived and a whole bunch of ANC, young ANC supporters were outside and making the most dreadful racket. And I remember being very naive and going up to one of the guys who was my res, who later worked in government and probably still does, going up to him and saying, but hold on a second, I I don't care about the IFP for a moment, but, uh, you know, surely it's freedom of speech. Yes, he's got complete freedom of speech. So I said, but but you're making this racket. He said, yeah, no, he's got freedom of speech. If no one can hear him, that's their problem. (laughs) Nobody's listening here either. That's the fundamental problem. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Unrivaled pursuit of great service that guides good business for clients. APSA's a registered FSP.
0: The Money Show.
1: Business books. One of the most enthusiastic, soothing and deep thinking proponents of South Africa's agriculture sector is a young man called Wandile Seljobo, and he's written another thought-provoking book. The book is a country of two agricultures. It's been out for a couple of months, and it's in all of the bookstores, and I fully expect alongside national health, the land issue will emerge as a very significant political background as we get closer and closer to elections. The ANC have made very strong commitments at its last conference on actions that it said it was going to take in order to drive land reform, but after years of political maneuvering and discussion and compromise, the party still not delivered on what it said it would, simply because the policy position that was uh, posited at its last policy conference was ill-considered. It would have destroyed the agriculture sector in the same way as NHI is headed for the buffers as we speak. Wendili Siklobo has written his latest book in an attempt to try and address several thorny issues. Matsi Modi says with us, she is chairperson of the South Africa Startup Act movement. And Rondelia, I think you'll agree, Matsi, which is precisely why you picked the book up in the first place, is one of the most critical voices
5: on the land issue in our country. Evening, Bruce, and hello to your wonderful listeners. I totally agree with you, Bruce. Uh, He's got an incredible mind. He's onto something that should not be a surprise. I mean, if we're living on a continent with the most arable land where agriculture is key to a growing our economy, why are we not thinking about it? So I absolutely loved this uh, book and it's been one of my favorites in, in the, in the past few months.
1: But it's South Africa's always had two agricultures. I mean, the, the the formal agriculture traditionally dominated by white farmers. There were about a hundred thousand white farmers in 1994. There are now probably 30, 35,000 commercial farmers in South Africa, still mostly white farmers uh, dominating commercial agriculture. The land holdings have grown over time. Uh, productivity has improved. It's a it's a remarkably resilient sector, uh, but it is still very much a country of two agricultures. You've got commercial agriculture, informal agriculture, the subsistence agriculture, and we've got a situation in farming and in land and in distribution of land which is tragically not sustainable. So, how does one dealer suggest we begin to tackle this?
5: So, I liked the uh, subtitle, which is the disparities, which you're um, referring to, the challenges, right? Um, but the great solutions and the great opportunities, because, you know, as young people, we have to see ourselves um, as part of the solution. Um, I like the fact that he also doesn't tackle it in the traditional sense, right? Um, He does speak to the opportunities that exist. Let's look at the technology um, component of it. Um, Let's look at the future of this country. Why is it that we don't necessarily have unicorns? And if we do have unicorns, they should be agricultural startups that we're able to grow, um, to start grow and scale their businesses, secure um, international investors, local investors, be able to take and tap into a global value chains. So I like that he takes a very uh, dynamic approach to it. And also the fact that, you know, it's all roads lead to COP28 this week in Dubai. Uh, climate, food security, environment, and the social aspects of it. Um, so I think this book for me was quite encouraging. Um, a bit depressing because he does speak of uh, what you made reference to, that it's still two-sided. Um, it's, it's, it's nearly 30 years of democracy. Um, and why is it that these opportunities in agriculture are not, uh, being taken advantage of? You know, I, I don't want to say why are we not why they're not being presented? It's like, well, if you, I, I come from a rural town in the Free State, right, Bruce? Um, in case you didn't know, so from, from? Um, yeah. Kwa-kwa. Kwa-kwa. Kwa-kwa in the Free State. Dan, yeah, yes, Dan, yes. Dan Moyane always <laughs> wanted
1: to report from Putadichaba, that's Kwah.
5: That's home. He that's rural. It's
1: very, very, very rural. There are few places more rural actually in South Africa, uh, and and again, these places are they they become sort of traps for, of they become poverty traps because there's no development there's nobody keen to invest because there's no security there's no tenure there's no clarity of thought as to how agriculture should function have we made progress i mean does one delay talk in this book and i haven't had time to get to it myself unfortunately but does does he talk to the progress that has been made because he's been absolutely front and center of the very important discussions that have happened in this um, in this country over the last five years, particularly regarding land and land
6: reform?
5: Mm. So in the macro view of things, we haven't made progress. I think you spoke to some of the statistics. But the change starts with us. The change starts with someone as dynamic as one delay, you know, um, that does create he gives us a context of where things come from, and then he brings us now back to 2023 and going into the future. And uh, he makes reference to the technological opportunities that present themselves. You know, there's a, another young dynamic uh, man called Caridas. Um, he's the founder of Hula Air, uh, which is really, really creating an opportunity for farmers um, with a market and as you actually go into that particular tech platform, it makes you understand that, well, to be able to be globally competitive, these are some of the elements that it makes it very practical. Uh, but saying as a young dynamic South African, there is no reason why you can't take advantage of what comes to you naturally. There's no reason why in the next few years, we can't be hearing of African unicorns that took advantage of agriculture. Um, I, I do feel that we should not get too stuck in the past, though it's something that it's very difficult to shake off right um given where we are given the leadership given um the you know people are sending mixed messages versus m- messages of opportunity and opportunities clearly outlining here it is as a young dynamic south african you have an opportunity to go to into agriculture um so i really like the spin that he's taken to it it's not getting stuck in the detail of where we are it's more here's the future and as young people you should start getting into agriculture getting your hands dirty and just, you know, taking advantage. Uh, and it
1: it is the, the future of agriculture has got to be commercial. I mean, it's all very sweet and romantic, I think, to be talking about a pastoral idol of people surviving off the land and stuff. But people are so vulnerable. I mean, you would have seen it in Kwakwai, would have seen it in parts of the old Transkai and Siscai, those parts of the world where you plant millies and you hope that the rain comes and you hope that they grow and then if you hope that the locusts don't come and you hope that the cows don't break in through the fences and eat the, the, the crops because otherwise... <laughs> your family starves next winter when, when there's no food. I mean, you know, we've got to go beyond the vulnerability, that very basic vulnerability that so many people have to have to depend upon.
5: Because things have evolved. Uh, things have evolved. Um, coming from the pre-state, um, you know, my mom, I would say, she's an alchemist, a herbalist, right? Uh, there's nothing that can affect me without her saying, I'm going to the garden and I'm going to pitch this herb, you know, about that herb. So I think we just have to go back to our roots, um as young people um and just make sure that we can take advantage of what's given to us naturally um it's very difficult I mean Bruce you know me I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship and for the longest of times we've been talking about the red tape and the challenges um we know that there are challenges around us but there are various solutions which I think Wandila is able to articulate in this very very great book um so I was quite excited I mean when i saw it on the show I was like okay this is an interesting book about agriculture yeah. but when you just read it it's like it's so potent with a lot of wisdom a lot of optimism but also clarity around what are the challenges the disparities and but you know as as, as young africans hear the opportunities whether it's in supply chain whether it's i mean it also talks to other economic concepts like supply demand global value chains Africa, free trade agreements, but then it also speaks to the socioeconomic components of why can you not see yourself? Uh, why do you see agriculture as not a sexy uh, thing to do when you just finished matric? You want to now go study so agriculture. Hard. Why is it? It's the, not, that's the reason.
1: It's not but, an easy it's one. Like, <laughs> it's proper work. It's
5: proper we make it sexy.
1: That's what he's saying. We should make it sexy. Some people think sweat is sexy. That is a sexy <laughs> thing. Thank you, Matzi <laughs> uh, uh, Chairperson at the SA Startup Act Movement, thank you so much for joining us this evening reviewing Wendile Siklobo's most recent book, which is South Africa's Two Agricultures. Yeah, agriculture. I mean, it's uh, It's not for anybody who is averse to labor and to stress and to 24 hours a day seven days a week of deep interaction with the land and with the animals and with the water pumps and the windmills and the weather and the how i make money welcome to lee crimble now lee is a behavioral linguist i know i don't know either and she's a language practitioner me too i'm also a language practitioner I talk. Uh, She founded a company called Breadcrumbs in 2019, South Africa's first behavioural linguistics firm. You've got to have a a set of teeth on you to get your teeth around that. Already I need an explanation. Lee Crumble, the founder of Breadcrumbs. What is, one, a behavioural linguist and what is a behavioural
10: linguistics firm? Bruce, you can only qualify to be one once you can say it. So congrats. (laughs) And you're also a former Rodan student, so um, yeah, it was definitely something that I was very interested in when I started my university studies, uh, did my linguistics degree at Rhodes. Funnily enough, never ventured into sort of the journ world, um, but then health communication sort of bit, and I was very interested in that. And many years later, I'm now in this world of behavioral linguistics, which is the decision-making that goes into how we choose to act in certain ways—is it marketing? I mean, is that what we're talking about? Is it a rose by any name? <laughs> it's, <laughs> but it's, it's a bit of everything, sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, is marketing
1: is the public relations? I'm trying to figure out, you know, is behavioral linguistics just a fancy term? for bullying people to do things they don't know they want to do or don't need?
10: Well, again, semantics, Bruce, we will say gently (laughs) nudging rather than anything to do with manipulation. Um, And, I mean, it's it's great to kind of sort of kick off with that and say that the ethical foundation of anything behavioral is so critical because you are presenting this very powerful uh, linguistic toolbox, I guess, to your clients and saying you can nudge people to make decisions just by tweaking a sentence, changing words, changing a grammar structure, uh, focusing on color psychology and, and a lot of subliminal things that are at play there in communications. Um, we would certainly say that behavioral linguistics can be used across any type of communication platform or channel, uh, but uh, a lot of the times our clients are looking at direct marketing as as their main kind of bread and butter. Because language is a beautiful thing. Language it is. can you know, language can
1: cause war or it can bring peace. Language can cause you to make a purchasing decision in one particular one particular thing over another thing. We think we make choices ourselves for ourselves and i'm not accusing you of manipulation but you certainly are you describe it as a nudge um great marketers people who are really good at being persuasive are able to move us in ways that we don't even realize or feel i think
10: absolutely and i think that's why it does come down to this ethical foundation of i mean without getting too academic but libertarian paternalism another tongue twister there but you have the freedom of choice as a consumer to make any decision you want, uh, and yet we're faced with so much noise out there and so many choices, so many decisions, and and we do have a finite amount of energy to make those decisions um, on any given day. Uh, people tuning into to your show, people tuning into this particular segment, and you're not just competing with other radio shows, other radio presenters. You're competing with a TV series, the, you know, a Spotify And the whole playlist. of the internet as well. The whole it. of the internet. This so, is a so tough you... gig.
1: This is a tough gig, I tell you. It
10: is. <laughs> how do you cut through that noise? How do you get people to choose you? And certainly where we see that it's in people's best interests, we love working with clients. We love working with brands and businesses who are ultimately trying to get people to make some type of decision that maybe they wouldn't have. Uh, and there's so many behavioral biases at play here, the status quo bias. No one wants to change. So you're not really thinking about, you know, you don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, what retirement annuities can I take out today? Because we like to just go with the flow and 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 really not make an additional decision. So where a brand can then cut through that and send you some type of very compelling communication, showing you the value and nudging you into doing that action, we just really find that to be quite beneficial to people.
1: There's a statistic you use, and I'm curious as to how you got to this number, but you make the claim that we probably make 40,000 decisions each and every single day. Most of them subconscious. Some of them are just reflex decisions. I don't know if breathing in and out counts as one or two decisions. Um, But 40,000 decisions, that seems fast. I don't have that much energy in the day to do 40,000 decisions.
10: Absolutely. And actually, I laugh at that point because I know my co-founders are listening in here, and we've subsequently done a bit of a deep dive rabbit hole exercise to try and find the, the reference to that number, and we cannot find it. So I will say straight away to listeners, do not uh, you know, hang your hats on the 40,000, but certainly there are tens of thousands of des- decisions from the moment you're waking up. And it's why, quite interestingly, Steve Jobs very famously refused to wear a different outfit each day. He had his black uh, polo neck, his blue jeans, his white sneakers, because that wasn't going to be one of the decisions he made.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, the guy who wouldn't make a decision on what to wear put in our hands a device that causes more procrastination. It doesn't know. Does it cause the procrastination or do we cause the procrastination ourselves? It provides the excuse we need or want or wish or desire um to... Zoom scroll to flick through to access the world of information. It's quite ironic um, that Steve Jobs would do that. And that's, of course, been emulated uh, by the Facebook guys and a bunch of other people. Because this idea that you could actually, if you have systems and processes and you have routines that are unshakable and unchanged, you are actually able to function far more effectively on the things that actually do require your attention
10: for sure and that's why i think the behavioral linguistic approach is something that really resonates with us uh, because you're looking at very easily tweakable elements in communication we we all use words we all all use language um, and not just professionally in our personal lives it's 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 such an important thing to be able to be persuasive uh, in your day-to-day life and so where you can change one word one sentence structure start thinking about visual language or color psychology or, or, or font pops, you know, we, we talk about pops of handwriting, which really does then form more of a connection with the consumer. Where you do start to think about those elements and the interplay of timing. We know when people receive a communication after they've had coffee or they've just eaten, they're far more receptive to it. So, So it really does look at a lot of different elements and trying to find that sweet spot as a business so that you are not just you know a tree falling in a forest and no it's no one seeing it especially with how much we're investing resource-wise into this
1: yeah absolutely i mean martin luther king didn't sort of say stand up and go you know you guys i've had an idea uh he didn't go and he didn't <laughs> say you know what i've been thinking he didn't say you know what if you've got time i'm wondering if you wouldn't mind possibly just sitting down and listening to me he went i have a dream and he did it with such It wasn't just the words that he used, but it was this raw, quivering emotion that came in the I Have a Dream speech.
10: And, and so much goes into that behaviorally. It's the present tense. It's the monosyllabic dream. It's the yeah. it's the strong consonant that you're hearing with the d sound. It's at, you know, the personal pronoun, I. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's so much behind every single word that goes into that.
1: And, and that is, I mean, when it comes to politicians, we're coming up to elections now. And we've got some very clumsy politicians, but we've also got some very smart politicians. We've got some, some politicians who understand this stuff in the same way I was going to say Joseph Goebbels, but people may take offense, so I won't say that. But certainly the greatest political manipulators of, uh, of the, the last hundred years have understood the power of emotion and the power of language, their ability. Barack Obama, you know, yes, we can. Three words, three words got him elected. Um, and it filled with the affirmation of yes, the fact that we are together in this and we can fix it. With just three very simple words delivered with a pause and with an emphasis that nobody's done before, and Barack Obama rose to the most powerful office in the land and the world, possibly.
10: For sure. And it's propaganda versus persuasion, I guess. And uh, you really do want to be. What is the difference? You want to be on the right side of it. And (laughs) we. It's really something we grapple with a lot. Like I said, we try to work with brands and businesses that do things or provide products or services in people's best interests. But you're paying a bit of. communication guard in a way because who's to say what is the right thing for the right person Uh, certainly we are lucky enough i guess that we're a small enough team that we take on uh, very few clients and the ones that we are aligned to are absolutely doing the right things it's saving for the future eating more healthily, exercising more Uh, our new world medication adherence is something we're getting really interested in how do you get people to take their chronic meds uh, how they're meant to uh, and No one's waking up and saying, oh, I don't want to do it. They, they know the benefit, but we still need to be persuaded and nudged uh, to remember to do it, to form habits, and really behavioral communication helps with this.
1: How did you get into it, Lee? I mean, what was the uh, – you, you could have done a thousand different things. You chose this particular avenue. You chose – this idea, you've chosen the brand. Did it branding.
10: choose me? Did it choose me, bro? Right.
1: I don't know. But you, you, you're <laughs> so wise. I would have thought you would have sidestepped it. If it tried to choose you, you would have said, no, get back. I, <laughs> I will choose you if I, I want nudged. to. But what was it that excited you about it? The, was it the power? Was it the ability look, to move millions?
10: Look, really the linguistic elements, I think, were quite interesting to me. Behavioral economics as its own field... Uh, with product design and pricing structures and ux and all the wonderful things that happen there there was a bit of a gap and i think it was actually you at a conference a few years back that said something along the lines of i'm going to paraphrase you now maybe it's not you but you can claim it that the best types of innovation uh, is when you combine two existing things. I'm sure it was you who said this to me once. Sounds
1: far too high a grade for me. (laughs) And
10: and so language and marketing and communication exists. Uh, We've got amazing agencies in South Africa doing wonderful, wonderful things. And at the same time, we have behavioral economists who are doing brilliant things. And there was this sort of compulsion that I had that I, I really wanted to combine the two worlds knowing that you can't just put out this beautifully crafted piece of communication that's got alliteration and looks beautiful and, and all the rest of it without understanding what it is that compels people to decide to actually follow through with a course of action.
1: I wonder, and we had a pause for a moment, Lee, uh, if there is a natural sequence of events where you you somehow you have to hook me, somehow you have to evoke an emotion, a positive or a negative one, somehow you have to... Do a series of steps that causes me to take an action of which I'm either aware or unaware, but I might, I would not have taken otherwise. I'd like to understand that sequence of events. I'm joined this evening by Lee Crimble. She is the founder of Breadcrumbs, and it is a behavioral linguistics organization, an audience, an organization designed uh, deliberately to. On behalf of her clients, nudge you in a particular direction, help you or to convince you to make different choices, choices that you might not otherwise have made, whether it be taking your pills on time or whether it be buying a certain product, or whether it be acting in a certain way. Dee Crimble, more from her in a moment. So much so that she should be writing a book. Where's the book? Why have you not written a book? Co-author
10: like. with me, Bruce. That I, could be
1: cool. I'm not putting myself through that hell ever again. <laughs> um, no, but it's it's just. I mean, there is so much to learn, I suppose, and there are so many textbooks written on the subject. And there, are, I'm, I'm sure, the maybe you don't want to give away your 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 secrets, but one secret I'm, I'm curious and you talk about the nudge, take me through the process of the nudge. How do you engage me in a way that either gets me to change a brand or gets me to take an action or gets me to take a decision? Because we've seen certainly the weaponization of this process, which has happened uh, through the, the bot farms and the processes of American elections, for example, and all of the scandals around that. How much of it is fact and how much of it is fiction, I do not know. But this information is, is power, and communication is power too, effective communication.
10: Absolutely, and I think we we can see it in both ways. We can be practitioners and we can use these tools, as I said, in our personal and professional lives, but we can also be more aware of them so that the dark nudging, which is another key term here, the sludging, doesn't affect us as consumers. And the perfect example is this month of sort of Black November, Black Friday, where you are being bombarded with all these various deals and I mean the big question is do you really need what you end up purchasing or have you been nudged in like fairly sort of sinister nefarious ways Uh, and and as consumers I think it's important that we're aware of some of the things that are happening this is not new this is not a new concept or introduced through the world of behavioral economics or behavioral linguistics I think it's age-old stuff that's always happened within marketing and advertising but now that we're starting to understand the science behind it and really unpacking what are these biases that are making us maybe more susceptible to certain messages? That can certainly be used in bad ways. But as I keep saying, we really do try and frame this in a more positive way of how can we get people to do the right things for their futures?
1: OK, so but is, is it sort of provoke an emotion um, or, or draw out an emotion, um, create emphasize the problem, create a sense that you've got a solution for me, and ultimately it causes me to take an action. I mean, is, is that the sort of
10: They're, the step-by-step yeah. process? Look, there are multiple frameworks. We use one called FEAST, which um, earlier on you mentioned quite a few acronyms happening in your show tonight, so here's another one to add to the mix, Yay. FEAST, which stands for Make Things Fun, Make Them Easy, Make Them Attractive, Make Them Social, and Make Them Timely. And that's kind of our little magic box of of delight when it comes to communication crafting and, and marketing. How can you use language in a way that evokes the fun, which captures the attention, boosts positive sentiment? How can you make things easy? Because no one wants yeah. to do heavy lifting here. Absolutely. No one wants to read things. No one wants to be, you don't wake up and think, oh, I, I need to read this email from my insurer, or I really hope my insurance company sends me a newsletter today. <laughs> But the insurance company needs to send you potentially that that newsletter or that communication. So how can they make it so succinct, so plain, so easy to comprehend that it's not taking up any of that important cognitive energy? And then the value framing through making things attractive, what's uh, beneficial to you might be slightly different to me, but there are these universal truths of how we can frame things and, and the value structure of how we can really say to the consumer, this is what you're getting out of it. And then social, we want to do what other people do. So it's called social proofing. It's a very, very powerful behavioral bias that we all have inherently within us that when someone tells us that they are doing something or it's popular or there's a product or a service that they've taken out and they really recommend, we tend to go with the herd and veer towards that option. And then, like I mentioned earlier, timely. Sometimes the message is is important, sure, but the time you send the message is just as important and we find things like monday mornings no one's reading a communication so you know the data's there we we, we analyze these trends through through Everlytic, this uh, email software program that's that does the majority of south african communications actually
5: but if and,
1: everybody is looking at the same data sets and the same data you are then doing the same as everybody else and then suddenly tuesday morning at half past 8 I get a 1,000 emails, or whatever the case might be. And suddenly everybody's competing in the same space if everyone's using the same sort of data set, surely?
10: So I love that you said that, actually, because it is one of the things that we say to our clients that this sort of testing is so critical because the more we tell people not to send a Monday financial services (laughs) communication, the more they're going to send it Tuesday after everyone's had a tea break or lunch. And then it's, you know, then your inbox is bombarded then. So... Really, this, this sort of trial and error, this testing, is something that's quite critical to this process and certainly to this field and this discipline and being able to see, okay, there are trends across industries. Uh, we saw travel and tourism, as an example, actually shot the lights out with Monday morning sends, uh, and we think this is a bit of escapism. You've come back into yeah, your office no, and you've I logged could, in. get that, yeah. And now you're planning your next holiday. So if you're a travel and tourism brand, Monday morning isn't the worst thing. Uh, but certainly, maybe if you're thinking of changing banks... That that's not going to be the time you make that decision.
1: No, you do that on payday when the bank doesn't work.
10: Um, g- colour. Talking about colour. I I,
1: I built a series, well, or I had a series of slides built, um, and I chose a particular colour palette. I didn't choose it. I asked somebody to help design, and this person came back with a proposal and said. This is the colour that you're going to use. I said, it's orange. Oh, my goodness me, I insulted her. It wasn't orange. It was a particular shade of orange that had been divined from, I don't know, mixing tangerine with the blood of the blood orange. And I anyway, it was a beautiful colour. But it was just something that worked so perfectly. And I was stunned by how magnificent it looked, and there were just color touches on slides and things, and it was just absolutely perfect. I then built a second series of slides, and I tried to change the color. I wanted the same sort of themes and things, and it just, nothing else worked. And there was something so, and I've subsequently seen this particular color emerging in other people's presentations and at other conferences and other gatherings and stuff. It's now becoming quite popular. But this person identified this color as being absolutely spot on this is the thing that's going to give you a sharpness and a clarity and you know and and really a vibrancy to uh to a slide deck and it's worked so well and remains relevant and remains good and no other color is good enough it's just it's astonishing to me the power of color
10: Please connect us because we're always looking for visual linguists, visual designers. So this person sounds exactly like someone we'd love to work with. But it's to your point, I guess, if everyone starts using it, maybe it loses a bit of power. But there is very inherent subliminal uh, psychology behind color. Uh, You know, your trust colors tend to be your blues, your pale colors, your grays, um, your more vibrant uh, action-based colors, your oranges, your bright pink Certainly, if you're thinking of sustainability and climate, immediately you'll say, with me, green. Uh, and so, and, and then blacks and, and, and uh, those types of colors are very prestige and status driven. So. Knowing that you can cue people at a, at a subliminal level before they've even read the first word on a page because of a visual image is quite a powerful, again, a little tool to have in our toolbox as marketers and communicators.
1: And it's you don't even realize you're responding to it until you have a visceral response to something. Suddenly you see something and it jars you or it warms you. Um, and so much of it depends on our moods and where we are, um, in our, in our everyday lives. Um, Where is the growth for you in this business? I mean, I I know that you and your sister work together very closely um, in in the business. And, I mean, that must be an adventure, or you're not normal sisters?
10: Uh, That's a lot of fun. We are normal sisters, and there's lots of… Quite robust communication. <laughs> Again, choosing the semantics. And you each there. know the rules she's of communication. She's definitely listening so. in, and she's definitely laughing. So how
1: do you guys fight if you all know the rules? Oh, we yeah, how we do, do fight? How do you disagree if you both know the True rules of words.
2: communication?
10: <laughs> no, and that's that's the funny thing. I think that no matter how much you know this world, we're still so susceptible to a lot of these similar types of trends and you kind of forget yourself and I've spoken to doctor friends who have said that in the same way that they give advice to patients they don't tend to follow it themselves as you know as them being the patient so yeah we, we definitely have very open communication and I think that helps a lot uh, we we're not too worried about potentially offending each other and it really does allow us to have some really really good discussions and we're very different people. I mean, Bruce, I think you've met both of us, and anyone listening in who knows us on a personal level, we have very different strengths, very different weaknesses. Mm. And for me, that's just been amazing because it's so complementary. Uh, um, even though, yeah, lots uh, if, of if you
1: can, be, feel free to name names. What is the most effective <laughs> communication that you've ever been involved in? What is the one you go, now that is when we got it absolutely right?
10: Oh, that's a nice question. I think I always have to root back to anything health communication, because health sciences really is, is my passion. And we got very involved, almost without having a client per se. But, but during the pandemic, we, you know, businesses were cutting back on marketing spend. And there was this moment of, do we survive, you know, kind of what is it, last-in-first-out type of thinking. And so we really, really pivoted and thought, how can we just start doing uh, sort of public sector stuff and just citizen-based communication? So we were looking at hand-washing posters across the various South African languages. Uh, We were looking at analyzing that mascot. And don't even get me started on Bravax, who was our mascot a few years back. I mean, I really can. My sister actually even got me a birthday cake last year shaped as Bravax because it was such a big thing in my life. Um, he was terrible, by the way, and if anything, probably did worse. Uh, yeah. Had, no, you, when you get it wrong, it's spectacularly wrong, well, isn't it? hundred percent. But I think I would, I would say anything that we've done to really promote pro-health behaviors, So we did a vaccine campaign with, with some clients, and those are the ones that make you feel good because you, you see that they're working. You see that you've sent a communication to X number of people, and suddenly they've registered on a portal for, for getting their vaccine, and, and you know that it's had some type of step change.
1: Lee Grimble, thank you very, very much indeed. Lee Grimble is the founder, with her sister, of a behavioural linguistics firm called Breadcrumbs.